I would put something in my mouth and just weep with joy because it's it would just be it would just be like nothing else. And those those food experiences, you know, because I think food experiences are, are such a strong strong part of us, you know, and they can be they can be either great, they can be good, or they can be really really bad. Um, but I carry those with me forever. This is the crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Fire, the dancing flame that flickers, the bursts of amber, red, yellow, and wisps of clean white, the crack, pop, and snap of wood as combustion takes hold, the warmth that wraps around you like a thick winter coat. Fire is incredibly powerful, mesmerizing even. It demands your attention, it draws upon your emotions, it changed the way we eat and set us on a new path of evolution. But for Lennox Hasty, he's not only drawn to the flame, he's willing to walk on it. Lennox, you've become the burning man, the, the man of fire. <laughs> what's, what's this last couple of years been like for you with Fire Door and sort of really changing perceptions on what it means to cook over fire? Uh, for me, it's just a, it's a never expanding journey. Like it's just, I mean, and and the last few years has been a bit a bit of a roller coaster. I mean, it's five and a half years of ups and downs and lefts and rights, but it's uh, always on the on the up and up, which is good. I mean, I'm learning more about cooking with fire, but also just running a business and leading a team. Um, and it's just incredible to see to watch something that you create grow and flourish. There's a lot of chefs that are cooking with wood fire ovens and cooking over fire and, and various things, but your approach is often um, misjudged or misunderstood. You know, you, you've been lumped in with um, smoked meats and barbecue, uh, all of those sort of things, but what you're doing is very much removed from that. Can you, t- can you tell us where it, where it starts, the cooking for you? Uh, the stuff cooking for us... I mean, for myself, starts every every morning when we light a fire in the restaurant, and we basically time all our preparations in harmony with that heat. We actually have to wait until the fire is hot enough to be able to cook. But obviously, there's things you can do at an early stage, be it smoking uh, a lot of the bases we use in the restaurant. But it's it's watching, it's creating that life on a daily basis and watching it grow. And it's it's a, such a beautiful natural heat source to work with that it's very difficult to then go back to working with gas and electricity like you feel very differently about it and you cook very differently you're you know you, you it's an instinctive form of cooking that can't be replicated by the meat there's an argument to say that you're technically not cooking over fire in the in the sense that you're creating a fire on the side and then taking the embers to to cook over can you tell us about that process and why it's so different uh yeah we use wood in the restaurant as opposed to we don't actually have any charcoal itself but we're creating our own embers from that wood and it's that ability to go back to that um that base that base product of uh, viewing the wood as an ingredient in its own right and and choosing different woods um different australian hardwoods whether it be sort of uh, the native ones things like iron bark or fruit wood lighter fruit woods like apple and peach and you know i could list like just literally like about 100 different types of woods i mean we use about any given time in the restaurant, we have about eight or nine on site, and then we'll choose four or five, four or five woods on a given day, uh, in accordance with what 
what ingredients we're showcasing on the menu. The ones that we, that we feel, um, and certainly a lot of it's very personal. Like it's, it's essentially it's like my, my personal seasoning pot, I suppose, the ones that I feel best enhance the natural flavors of the ingredients. So it's not to overwhelm them. It's to, to find a point at which the ingredient marries with the wood um and and finds this 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 point at which both can really sing one thing that's really stood out is not only your focus on fire but the starting point for you is the ingredient not a recipe can you tell us how important that is to your form of cookery uh the yeah ingredients everything and it's it, it took me a long time i think um as a, as a chef to to realize that um, you know, it was something that was, I think it was, I was more in touch with as, as a child, uh, that sort of fascination with ingredients, but then becoming a chef, you sort of look, you know, you're sort of learning different techniques over the years and you look at the life of a chef and everything that it encompasses and you kind of lose touch. I mean, I certainly did through my progression. I lost touch with, with the ingredients I love so much. And it wasn't until years later that I then found through cooking with fire actually brought me closer to the ingredients I love and because and the realization that without those ingredients I just didn't want to I didn't want to cook like everything I do is for the beauty of the ingredients uh, and that and the, the most beautiful way I can see to showcase that is through cooking with fire even though it's the most hard, hardest form to uh, to cook that's for sure well your career didn't start with cooking over fire you're from the UK and you worked in some pretty incredible restaurants over there can you tell us those early stages, what it was like working in La Gavroche and La Manoir? Um, what, what was it like as a young chef in those restaurants? Um, I mean, it's a very different experience to what it is, to what restaurants are now. I mean, I, and I consider myself a bit of a, I suppose when you see that that shift in, in any industry um, you can and you've experienced both sides of it, you consider yourself a little bit of a dinosaur. Um, even though it wasn't that long ago, but, um, you know, um, you know, the, the first kitchen that I went to when I was 15, um, was a one Michelin star, which was near where I, I lived. And, um, that was just to get some work experience. That was my first, um, foray into, into a kitchen. And I mean, luckily enough, there's lots of, because of that Southeast of England, it's very much the garden of England kind of feel about it, but it had lots of those old, stately manor houses with amazing you know would have a french chef in a kitchen and um just to be exposed to that at a very young age you know it was it was i mean it was such a game changer it was just i found a, a completely different world um that was behind closed doors you know there was no open kitchens in those days um definitely you know chefs were all about what goes on in the background and I was really sort of it's such a visceral world because there's lots of there's lots of movement that has its own sort of lifespan in terms of how a kitchen of that those those levels operate you know it's very different to a strikingly different to a, a domestic kitchen at home um, you know you have brigades of chefs that are sort of drilled like like the army um, different levels different hierarchy and uh, you know I was I was I was pretty made made aware that I was the lowest of the low. You know, I was given all the donkey jobs in the kitchen available. So, but the, but there were still there were still things that I was you know impressed and I took great pride in from making, you know, making stocks to plucking game to making jam, um, and taking taking sides of salmon down to the smokehouse to to be smoked because it was a smokehouse on site. It was that sort of traditional English style. But there was no, I mean, back then there was no 
I mean, for us, for us, barbecue in, in the UK represents sort of uh, you know burning sausages in the in the, in the garden in the summer. Um, I mean, it's very different. You you learned your your craft in some pretty special restaurants, but what you do now couldn't be further from that. Can you tell us where that sort of journey started? Where you started to you wanted something new, you wanted something different, and it led to that sort of allure of fire. Yeah, I suppose because I, I mean, I always wanted to 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 be a better chef, and I think most people do. You know, whatever they do, they want to sort of be improve themselves and so I, I kind of set in my mind a bit of a path and y- you know you don't you don't plan too far in advance I mean this is not it's back in those days you kind of spend it's not it's not as much as the I mean stages weren't really a thing you didn't really um, it was more about how long you spent in a particular uh, environment and the implications of that so to go from to move from London you know I, I trained in London um, at Westminster, because uh, I wanted to have that. Having having finished school, and I was quite adamant about finishing school, even though school didn't see any need for an education. Like I was the only person in my class who was going into something that was non-academic like that, um, which wasn't something that was supported by my school. Um, but I wanted to finish my education. I wanted to go to, to Westminster and get that really good base of theory and practical. Uh, behind me to then, which then enabled me to go to places like the Gavroche and um, go from the Gavroche and then move out to the country to places like the Manoir, which is an amazing, again, you know, you think about sort of three, three, four years in this, in this, in London to then spend four years at Le Manoir Catches On, um, when most people who go to the Manoir only last four days. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's a, it's a big sort of test of, test of strength. I mean, a lot of the times you question, what the hell am I doing here? But you just you just put you push on through um, because it is such an immense training training ground offers you know has that old style kind of kitchen and very few places can do it nowadays. There's probably only a handful in the world where they have you know a dedicated butchery section where you're just breaking down whole animals and and a fist section and a hot starter section and a meat section and a fist section like it's all and you can literally see it all and and experience and travel around it all. You know nowadays it's much. You know, with you know higher labour costs and 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 not much space in kitchens, it's all essentially you know lots of sections kind of double up. So to, to be able to focus on that was was a huge pull for me, uh, and then to go, I suppose, because of, I mean, back in those days, if you're looking at any form of you know quality and level of restaurant, we what we the highest accolade for that was Michelin. And so I suppose, I, in some respects, not that I was, ch- I wasn't really, ch- I don't suppose I was chasing stars, but it was just that kind of you earning your spurs by moving up into the next league. And it is very much a league, a bit of a league system because you go from a, a one star to a two star. You, there's a notable jump in, in the kitchen and the way it's run and the the style of food. And then to move from a two star to a three star when I went to France and worked with Marc Laurent was again another step up you know you're moving into a different league so it's uh and i always wanted to be in the premier league so but then i got to i suppose i got to the three michelin star restaurants and i found myself it still wasn't enough it it wasn't giving me what i need it actually took me further away from from the ingredients i love so much and 
I found myself at a point, and this was, you know, then moving to a three-star in Spain, Martin Berstegui, where there was an over-complication of food. There was an over-handling of food. And what should have been the most important thing being the ingredient was then relegated down, down the line. Um, and became sort of, you know, sort of about the sixth most important thing on people's minds. You know, the, the ingredients suffered as a result. And at that point, I thought, oh, my God, like, what the hell am I going to do? Like, you get to that level and you, you just find it's not what, you, not what you wanted. It's not what you, it's not the promised land you were looking for. And you just, you just left bereft. I mean, I just, I, I knew I didn't want to work there anymore. It literally ripped, ripped my, my heart and soul out to, um, to then have to think about, you know, starting again. You then uh, went on a journey. I know you spent some time in uh, Spain and San Sebastian, which um, really changed your life. Can you tell us about that period and, and the steps that led to that change? Yeah, I mean, I love the, the region. I mean, the region is quite, if you've never been, the, the, Basque, the Basque country is is so removed from the rest of Spain that, that i sort of growing up with as a child you know Spain was always being in the UK was where you go for your summer holidays and you go people go to the south but the north is definitely where there's for me the Basque country um, which is actually you know they're quite adamant to say this is not Spain is strikingly different in its in its traditions and its food and it, it's pride it, this is an overwhelming pride in its food at every single level um, and the love of ingredients there's I mean it's just the most amazing seafood, meats, um, cheeses, cured meats. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, and to sort of be, I wanted to be, I suppose I wanted to explore that world a bit further. I was quite happy being um, there. So I, I decided to stay a while in San Sebastian um, in one of the pinchos bars, which is called Astalena, and, and just started helping out there. And I, and I loved that because it was, it was it was not a not a big kitchen by any means. It was it was it was a complete opposite polar opposite of what I was working at in the three mission star restaurant. You know, it wasn't six guys dressing a plate. It was just one guy, um, and it was essentially like it was a couple of couple of chefs and a and a and a, and a kitchen hat. That was it, um, and just focusing on whatever ingredients you got. At, you know, whatever vegetables, whatever wild mushrooms coming from the mountains at the market every day, and whatever fish was coming from the boats, and there was a there was a there was a simple joy in that um, that I was I was quite happy to um, I yeah I, I appreciated the sea change for that for that brief period of time. It, there was a even though I was working at a completely different level, it suddenly made me re realign and reassess. You know, well, what is you know, what is what is good food about? Is it is it about just the, the fine dining restaurants, or can you can you eat well at every single level? And that's the the great thing I, th- I think I found in the Basque country is you can do, you know, you can eat you can eat the most amazing sort of pinchos at a at a bar in San Sebastian that's only going to cost you a couple of euros. You know, it doesn't doesn't need all the bells and whistles, but it can be the most incredible food experience. Um, and it was whilst working in that bar that I overheard a couple of um, patrons at the, at the at the bar top talking about a restaurant in the Basque Country. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know what you'd call it, serendipity or, 
or whatever. But something perked my interest about this, hearing about this this chap who's in the mountains. You know, something quite romantic about that notion about oh, there's this guy in the mountains, and you know, he he just grills grills things, and it's like, well, that sounds. And I was always, you know, like like most chefs are, you're always kind of looking for those sort of little little outposts to maybe go and visit on your days off those sort of, sort of small local restaurants. And for some reason, I don't know what it was. I mean, it just, it just literally put my interest And in the next day. I, I, I managed to get the day off and hired a car and, and drove it, drove out there. Um, got a little, got a little bit lost along the way because it is quite a difficult one to find. It's essentially a, a an Azador, which is located um, deep, deep in the mountains in a small village between, um, San Sebastian Bilbao and uh, yeah it's um, I, I kind of knew from the smell of wood smoke and, and entering the village that I, I'd somehow arrived. What did you experience when you got there what what changed everything for you? Uh, I mean I think at that day I was just I was I think uh, I didn't realize there was a change at, at, that, at, that, at that stage it was more I was looking for something and I I found this small restaurant, very unassuming, in a in a village where I, I met a man, and quite a big man. Uh, Victor's not not small by any means. You know, he's a good good sizable guy um, who was working in a on a on a in an asador, on a on a grill section in a galley style grill, um, largely by himself. There was a sort of a off the main kitchen. So there's a main kitchen with a couple of chefs, handful of local chefs. Um, there's a French guy there, which helped me a bit because then I, I could speak French. I could not speak Spanish, and um, yeah, he was he was just grilling ingredients. And for some reason, I was this this guy who you know he wasn't dressed like a chef. He just wore a you know a white scrappy t-shirt and some sweatpants and some trainers. Um, and I thought, Jesus, for some reason, I want I wanted to come and come and experience this i didn't at that stage uh make any you know when you're younger you don't really sometimes you just you, you're quite spontaneous you know you, it's spontaneous you don't really make a plan to go oh yeah i'm gonna take a job here and i'm gonna spend the next five years here it was like it was more of those things like i just wanted to immerse myself in in that experience and so i i, I, I asked for a job um, my CV probably didn't help me the most because it was all Michelin based and Victor had no desire to sort of, um, no, no desire to chase Michelin stars. And, um, I suppose, you know, literally I was quite insistent that I wanted to start work. And he goes, okay, then you can start tomorrow, which was, a bit <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting, but I, 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 I then, you know, drove back to San Sebastian, had to leave obviously the Pinchos bar, um, like that, that evening. And then I jumped on, I put my hire car back. I jumped on a train and started work the next day. Uh, I was late. I was late for my first day at work, which was, amazing. <laughs> that was not, <laughs> not because the, the, the train from San Sebastian kind of meanders really slowly for about 60 villages, uh, along the way, which wasn't the best, but, um, yeah, I was literally thrown right into the fire on the grill my first day. Uh, with Victor for a lunch service, and it was just, it was, it, you know, it, more than anything, and even speaking about it now, it reminded me of my first day in the kitchen when I was 15. Like, it suddenly, suddenly, I was suddenly, I was suddenly like that little kid again being awoken by seeing something completely different, which having spent, you know, 
15, you know, 15 odd years, you know, 10 to 15 odd years in a kitchen, you know, chefs are very unlikely to find something at that mature age that then they suddenly turns their head and they like, they like feel like a child again. How did you feel about everything that you had learned so far? Did you have to unlearn things as a chef? Uh, I suppose like, yeah, I did. Um, but it's interesting because I suppose that's what everything I learned. I mean, and the difficulty is, is you always, as some of your experiences and the places you learnt, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would say it's probably easier to learn wood fire cooking if you, if you're not hunkered down by years of doing things a different way. But in the same instance, there was what I'd learned was a, a discipline. I, what I'd learned is a lot of hard work. Um, and I think that resonated strongly with Victor and also the way in which I could organize a kitchen. Um, you know, I'd learned that, you know, there's, 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 and the way in which I could, I suppose a lot of the time, yeah, there were things I was wanting to, I was trying to absorb as much as possible. I mean, Victor wasn't, he's not like a straight, the most straightforward teacher, essentially like learning by observation, you know, I mean, he didn't speak English, I didn't speak Spanish, but, you know, I was essentially learning by osmosis, but at the same time when he wanted, or I could tell where he was struggling potentially to, to do something, I, you know, I could find a way, you know, it was, it was this beautiful relationship where he came from very different backgrounds. And, uh, you know, he, I completely trained as a chef. He never trained as a chef. Um, so seeing those two worlds collide was, was, was something incredible. Um, and, and I think that from the way in which I could formulate a lot of his ideas helped, helped him, um, as much as he you know, helped, uh, helped me and open my eyes to the beauty of wood cooking. What sort of uh, dishes do you remember from the, that time? I know it wasn't recipe based and it was based on ingredients, but were there things that changed your perception on how to cook specific ingredients? Yeah, completely. I mean, oh God, I mean, how many different levels do you look at? Um, it, there was just this flurry of the most incredible ingredients that would come in the door, which was, you know, amazing considering where, how remotely we were located, but essentially we were ideally located because we're in the mountains. So we have the land and we're not far from the coast. We've got the sea and then we had a vegetable garden and, you know, I'd worked in restaurants like the Manoir that have their own vegetable gardens, but to be able to grow enough vegetables for, to sustain a restaurant is quite difficult. We had a, you know, we're fortunate enough. We had a, vegetable garden the size of a football pitch um which is, is is quite striking it was run by um victor's father who's sadly now passed away um but it was that kind of that that bass style of being very self-sufficient they're not requiring necessarily a lot from the outside world apart from just working with nature and, and the ingredients thrown at you but i mean the difficulty of edge of barriers it, it set for me such a high bar in terms of personal bests for ingredients and for eating. You know, you look across the board from fish and shellfish from the coast there, going, you know, from um, all around Spain, not obviously not just locally on our coast where you get things like pasuga and monkfish, but across the Galicia, incredible turbot, like the most incredible turbot from the Atlantic that would range from the smallest would be about three kilos to seven kilos in size that we were cooking whole on a grill, you know, that's so far removed from, I think, 
previously seeing something like a, what I thought was a good sized turbot at sort of three, four kilos and breaking it down into pieces and beautiful sections and just cooking that small section. And, you know, I, I just think to remember, you know, grilling turbot at Le Manoir, which is a dish that I always loved with aromatic oil, but they would, they would grill it on a gas barbecue um and there would the the the, the height the, the basically the requisite for grilling was to grill it perfectly at 90 degree angles you know that was the that was the benchmark for grilling so to then reverse all that and cook an entire fish whole on the bone and uh grill it over a, a, you know a, a live fire with fruit embers and to see the way in which that i mean it just completely changed everything for me i mean to cook whole fish like that and and to cook like the way the gelatin the pockets of gelatin run along the spine the way in which the the the, the skin caramelizes like pork crackling it's just it's just absolutely outrageous like it's uh, it, like literally you just weep and i and i remember i have i had so many instances of this uh Echibari where i would put something in my mouth and just weep with joy because it's it would just be it would just be like nothing else and those those food experiences you know because i think food experiences are, are such a strong strong part of us you know and they can be they can be either great they can be good or they can be really really bad um but i carry those with me forever uh in terms of like, I remember how I felt when when I when I sucked on a head of a prawn from the east coast of Spain at Palamos, you know, and 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 that's just looking at things like seafood, you know, live like live baby shrimp, um, the the eel, you know, ingredients I've never seen before, like the the eels, uh, the baby eels, which are essentially like the most expensive fish spaghetti you ever have in your life is like a hundred euros for a bowl but even just something like that where you, you take you're essentially going the exact opposite you're not eating big fish you're eating baby fish um to pulpitos like baby octopus that would be the size of your fingernail i mean it's just mind-blowing in terms of the the level and the quality of the ingredients and that i mean that's just the seafood then you look at things like the meat you know it just ticks so many boxes across you know normally you go to one place and you think Oh, this place is really good for this. You know, this place is really good for seafood, or this place is really good for meat, or this does really good vegetables. Etchebarri, like the Basque Country, had everything, you know, and everything was was showcased on the grill, and that that was out outrageous and outstanding. You had to have freshly picked vegetables, peas picked from the the garden, and then just kissed over the grill is mind-blowing you know it's just like that's all it, that's all it needed i didn't have to you didn't have to cook it three different ways your time in the michelin star restaurants i know you're butchering whole animals and in fact there was even an article written about you butchering a whole pig back in those days when you were a, a young chef um, what was it like then cooking over fire and butchering were you butchering whole pigs and trying to work out what to do with that yeah we sort of there was a lot less uh Le- there was definitely less butchery, I think, at at, at Echibari than there was. I mean, obviously, in terms of size of animal, it's obviously hard to gauge. Um, the, the, a lot of the pigs, like, I mean, we had such a dedicated butchery section in places like the Manoir that you would break down a lot of suckling pigs and, I suppose, showcase them in different um different lights you know you do something different with the belly and something different with the rack and you'd put the legs on the rotisserie um that area you wouldn't see so much suckling pig you would see much larger 
animals because the majority of the pig that was used was then used for um, things like charcuterie. And, you know, and things when charcuterie in, in bass terms is obviously the famous chorizo, which was its own thing. Um, you know, it, it was it was an event. It was it wasn't just like, oh, this we're getting a couple of pigs in next month. It was a, it was a period of the year and it only happens in the in the cooler months um, because of when they slaughter the, the, the basically the, the slaughter coincides or when you can hang the, the charcuterie outside the pigs outside freely in in the cold the really dry um, the dry cold in the mountains and you can hang the charcuterie up there and it was this you know the fact that we would take pigs both both locally um, actually from I strongly remember actually from uh, Victor's brother who I used to live with in a ruin, the old ruins of the family house, like this really broken down house was, was killing a pig one day right outside the front of the house. Um, and they would, you know, they would they collect the blood and then with the blood we made, made a morphia essentially, which is the, the Basque or Spanish black pudding. Um, and it's that use of all that like, that same sort of process of that using all the ingredients of the using all the parts of the animal and, you know and deciding okay well we, the blood the blood makes a sausage and then these hams get cured or, or made up and, and ground into to make the the chorizo um which was its own labor of love because essentially every year would make you know every week would, would uh, basically a period of six six to six to seven weeks seven weeks at the most because then it started to get too too warm We'd basically make every week on our on our one day off. We'd make three hundred kilos of chorizo, uh, which which was insane, you know. But it, and it, it was so beautiful because we'd obviously take the really fatty, rich pork, um, add um, literally just salt, garlic juice, and um, instead of uh, powdered pimenton, pimenton churrasquilla, which is a certain type of pepper that only grows in that area. Uh, it's, and it's got a flavor like no other end, but instead of taking the powder, we would actually grow the peppers ourselves, dry the peppers up at the house, and then rehydrate the peppers and scrape the puree off the skins and put that puree into the mix, which is what made the most amazing, like, hands down, like Victor's Chorizo and Chistora is the most amazing thing, one of the most amazing pork products you're going to ever put in your mouth. But, and, but that's how simple it is, it's just, yeah, I know it's many years later, but Fyodor, can you tell us about how that happened? And you know, it's a restaurant that had no gas, no electricity. You've got two wood fire ovens um, and grills. It's. Um, I remember the first time I ate there. It was. I realized immediately it was something that we hadn't experienced before in Australia. And um, tell us about how that started and. And what it actually is, what you're doing at Fyodor? It's uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a labour of love. I mean, some some people call it a love letter to the Basque country, um, which I suppose in a way it is. It's 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 it, 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 I wanted to, having cooked, spent five years at Echibari, um, I continued like I didn't suddenly want to change my mind and find a different form of cooking. Like there's nothing, nothing has touched the sides in terms of cooking with fire and how that affects me how I cook and the flavor of those ingredients so I wanted to continue that journey of you know thinking well that you know the Basque tradition is one amazing culture one amazing tradition but how many other 
cultures, how many other traditions are there out there in, in the world? And finding a place like diverse enough, like Australia, where there's the potential to, I think, showcase a lot of different cuisines through Cooking with Fire and exploring the ingredients that we have in Australia, many of which, you know, having grown up in Europe, I'd never cooked with before, but also also the woods. I mean, going back to that base idea of looking, just looking for wood to see if, if, if something was possible here, because without the wood, without the ingredients, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't open a restaurant. I needed those, those base foundations had to be in place and they had to be solid ones. Um, and the, the Australian native wood, like the, the ironbark, for instance, burns 400 degrees hotter than the, 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 the oak we're using in Spain, you know, uh, which was, which was quite a learning curve for me. It was a huge learning curve. My first oven, broke um under the under the stress of the heat and so we had to produce you know find another way way and means of obviously being able to do this um and even though it it took me four years it was a painful four years so i was having a restaurant um with the finks um it's i think that time was necessary to to make all those trials and errors to to and to form more importantly form those relationships with the the producers we we now work we, we we've worked with from the beginning some we continue to work with obviously you know we continue to find new amazing farmers and producers out there and you know different types of woods that we cook over and that and that's the way in which we kind of evolved the kitchen and, and, and the style of cooking itself we've we've talked about fire and history and culture and how important it is to so many cultures on the planet what what's so special about cooking on fire for you can you take us to the moment when you're in front of the embers and cooking like what what is the process (laughs) um it's it's beautifully simple i mean essentially you're you're literally just um you're lighting a fire every single day and you know you're working you're working kind of backwards from there and you are exposing, you're essentially creating the most amazing embers. You're finding a point at which the wood is, you're choosing. I mean, you, you, I think that's the, that's the interesting sort of insight is the fact that you're, you're making the calls. You're, you're part of the process. Um, you're an ingredient in your own right. Like everyone grills differently and you're essentially, you know, not only choosing your ingredients, but you are an ingredient because then you're, you're highlighting, you're putting your own, um, fingerprint on on the actual process itself. You're choosing what, which which embers you're using at any given time. You're choosing at what stage you choose those embers. How many, the proximity of the the ingredient to the embers itself, and you know that has an undoubted effect on the finished result. It's, it's amazing to see something so. It's an interesting process when you're like up close and personal with it. I mean, again, the kitchen is hotter than I'd ever imagined um just by just by the, the sheer desire and a driven desire when i saw the opportunity to only cook with fire to to, to basically not cook it with gas gas or electricity I, I chose i chose that harder path because i wanted to see if it was possible and i wanted to really push my limits um but as a result the kitchen is obviously a very um a very hot space to work in and it's it can be daunting sometimes because essentially the style of cooking that we do even though a lot of um barbecue is traditionally sort of low and slow 
um, is essentially um, it's a live it's a live fire kitchen. It's it's essentially there's nowhere to hide. It's an open plan. Um, there's a, a, it's an immediate form of cooking where essentially we're cutting meat and fish to order, we're killing shellfish to order, and we're grilling to order. Just really trying to find this really fine point where an ingredient just is is, is at, at its at its optimum. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult line to kind of it's, it's like this daily challenge. And even now, you know, even five and a half years later of running this restaurant every single service i filled this challenge you know it's and it's um and it's 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 the most beautiful thing but at the same time it's when you get it right it's 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 the most incredible feeling um uh, but at the same time that you're sort of running you're running on this really high adrenaline level um sometimes you can be faced with this obviously the waiting customers the expectation is there but obviously you're almost in your zen like zone because you're faced with this wall like fire and you're trying not to panic because uh, obviously that's the thing that a lot of people do there's this you're essentially riding this edge of danger when you're cooking with fire and you sometimes i mean even the other night i was you know throwing three steaks on one one table on, on the on the grill and um yeah, the steaks had a high level of marbling. Um, suddenly, the flames crept up, and the, the flames got you know almost licking the top of my head at one stage. And it's those in those state when you're really you you feel like you're really in the fire, and it's it, it's very daunting. It's a very daunting way to cook, but there's nothing. I suppose after years, I I, I just I, I kind of accept it to a certain degree, but at the same time, it, I still get like the the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end like literally i'm i'm suddenly awakened and alert like i'm, I'm, I'm you, you really you really have to be on your game when it comes to grilling in that style it's such a difficult thing to describe <laughs> you mentioned that about the right moment to cook and talking you to you previously you've talked about stages of fire a couple of different stages and when the best time to cook different ingredients are can you tell us a bit about that uh, yeah, I mean, one of the misconceptions is people sort of tend to cook a lot over over flame. I find um, because they don't necessarily, um, for some people, they believe that flame's the hottest part of and the most flavoursome part of a of a, of an actual uh, a fire itself. When the reverse is true, like the ember stage is is the cleanest, the most flavoursome, and the and the highest heat potential. So, it, and it's having it's exercising. You know, cooking with fire is all about exercising patience. You know, it's, you're essentially in a situation where you're forced to slow down and appreciate the ingredients around you and be part of the process. And, you know, there's you have to wait for the fire to be ready. You have to wait for it to burn down to embers to then um, allow the ingredients to really come forward. You mentioned uh, the challenges of finding the perfect ingredients. And I know you spent many years looking at Australian ingredients to find those. And you had a real tough time finding the sort of pork that you wanted. But you, you managed to find that. Can you tell us about that experience and you know what what good pork means to you and and how to cook it? Uh, crikey, yeah, it's I mean, it's very difficult, and because of, I think because of Spain obviously sets so many benchmarks, and you're coming from a culture which obviously has, um, you know, things like jamón, um, and that that's that sort of those sort of that depth of flavor that handling of, of of the meat that sort of 
those incredible landscapes uh, where you have pigs doing what they do best, which is rooting. You know, it's sort of, uh, which I know has a different connotation in <laughs> Australia. But uh, essentially, you know, being allowed to sort of roam free and feast on, you know, acorns, berries, roots, wild mushrooms and things like that. And that, you know, the, the, the richness they get from that experience being allowed to just be what they are. Um, and, and naturally, there's a, there's a natural way in which, I think animals should be raised and, and, and when they are raised naturally, I think it really resounds in, in that eating quality. I mean, just the way in which, you know, the pork tastes very different, like those, that, 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 that Iberian pork that tastes, you know, because of that, that amazing climate and that amazing diet, um, you know, just tastes magical. So I think it's really difficult and it was the same with the beef coming to Australia and trying to find, you know, obviously we don't have exactly that kind of breed, you know, like much like our beef, we have a lot of the old English breeds of pork, um, you know, the, the sort of heritage breeds, the Berkshires, but then trying to find, you know, farmers who really understand, because obviously there's, there's a difficulty in, a, in Australia largely, I find with, you know, the word free range and how free range it actually is. And, trying to, and just trying to know your produce, producer as much as possible and to know how they farm. And, um, yeah, most of the guys, pretty much most of the guys who work with uh, are all they're super passionate about what they do. You know, they're all regenerative farmers and they really care for their, their livestock, which is a beautiful thing. Um, and particularly some of the pork producers we work with now who, you know, are fairly um, – incredible uh, you know we, we get we can't really get pork from uh both frank um at toluca park um you know who, who has a who's very close to the city um luke winder at marima who's got a again really interesting mix because he's got he's got the tokyo x which again is a bit of a crossbreed of a duroc berkshire and a beijing black but again farming really small amounts which and, and the reason we sort of work with a couple of different producers is to get so make sure we have enough pork, have enough for the restaurant because these guys don't farm intensively; they're not farming huge numbers. You know, it's just it's just the the odd couple of pigs that we can get. And I think probably my favourite of the producers is one called Extraordinary. Um, the farm is actually called Extraordinary, and and for me that the pork the, the pork just is is absolutely extraordinary as well it's it's literally 30 30 minutes from in dubbo um michael um hicks and his wife alexandra they've literally got 140 hectares where they just rotate the pigs on a ro rotating pasture and i think that they they really took it next level when they um decided to they went through all the goalposts to basically be able to have their own mobile abattoir and kill their own pigs on site um, which I think I think is going to be more become, and I hope it's going to become more of a common thing in Australia because a lot of the time we have the most amazing ingredients, so they they kind of they suffer at someone else's hands. Um, you know, we have a lot of difficulties, and I find this repeatedly in certain abattoirs because it, ta it takes a certain type of person to work in an abattoir, um, and you know, it's, it's, it would be a bloody horrible job, and to be able to make make. You know, to make those cuts precision, a lot of the times the animals have to travel a long way to abattoirs because Australia is such a big bloody country. 
Um, but by obviously killing on site, the animals don't have to travel two and a half hours. Um, and they just have control over their entire production cycle from birth to death. Um, and it, and it just resonates so much with the, with that sort of those places in Spain that would do, would do that as well. And, and you can really taste the difference when you eat the pork. Now that you found these ingredients, what's, what's some of the best ways that you like cooking them and, and what do you match with them? Uh, we, so from the guys extraordinary, we take, so we tend to take the, the saddles, the barrels essentially of, of the pork. Um, you know, there's sort of, there's, there's again, because they have small amounts of these pigs as a, as a group of chefs, I mean, a lot of the, um, the extraordinary stuff we get through feather and bone and it's, you know, there's lots of demand for, you know, really high quality sausages and things like that. But, but we, we'll take the saddles, we age all our meat. Um, so it's not just the beef we age, we age our lamb, we age um, our chickens, we age um, our pork as well. Um, just because in terms of that dry heat on the fire, um, it's, it's great that you start with a really dry skin uh, when it comes to things like pork, but also because you just want to intensify the flavors. So we, we, we age on the bone for about three weeks um, in our dried fridge, and it, it, it just makes such a huge difference um, and I think as well, if, I, if I run the juxtaposition between, I think, um, what I was doing previously in a lot of the French restaurants where you have like really high temperature fat, um, in terms of like sealing off a piece of pork and obviously the crackling all, all bubbles up and goes really crispy to how incredible the wood fire can be because essentially we just leave it to dry for three weeks. We'll just cut as a whole piece of barrel, we'll basically cook it as a whole piece try and keep it as integral as possible on the bone because um, you get this beautiful sweetness to it when you cook anything on the bone. We'll score the fat lightly and then literally um, burn down some fruit embers. I really like um, sort of peach, nectarine and wine barrels for pork for some reason. It just has this beautiful sweet perfume that really uh, marries well with the sort of really sweet and uh, nutty pork. And then um, the heat from that travels up. It's always really interesting to see when you sort of pull embers out the fire. They don't look particularly hot, but they're actually burning between 800 to 900 degrees Celsius. And that's far, so it's far hotter. That radiant heat that you get from a fire is far hotter than obviously what you'd get in a pan cooking with oil. So it's just the, amazing to watch the way in which the skin just crackles and it was super crunchy and glassy. Um, and it has all the flavor behind it of the, of obviously of the wood. Wow. Well, Lennox, you've changed the conversation of cooking over fire in Australia and, and globally you become almost a household name among chefs and the restaurant fraternity with what you're doing. It's extraordinary. Uh, we've loved having you on the crackling, uh, keep in touch and, um, we'll catch up again soon. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Huck. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.